Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. Welcome to XJob Downloaded. Today we're going to uh, interview Gary Hayes. Gary, thanks ever so much for driving through these terrible wintry conditions. I hope that uh, your journey wasn't too onerous. It's great to meet you today and you've got an absolutely fascinating story to tell about your life and how you've gone through the military, looking after the stars, to running a fantastic charity, PTSD 999. Yeah, thanks. Um yeah, I suppose we'll start at the beginning. Um, born in the East End of London. Um, born in Stepney. Um, yeah, don't remember too much about that time. I'm uh, the eldest of four kids. Um, from Stepney, we moved on to the Isle of Dogs. Bit of history, still got family living over there now. Um, and then, like everyone else from the Isle of Dogs, back in the early 70s, we emigrated to a wonderful place called Dagenham or Dagenham. <laughs> um, and my parents still live there now. And I sort of, you know, I guess you cut your teeth in life, as it were. And it wasn't easy. I know we hear this all the time growing up in that area. It was tough. Um, but, yeah, sort of, I don't know, sort of develops you as a young person, I guess, to where you might want to go in, in future life. And Dagnum is, it's fair to say that the people that live there are the salt of the earth. I mean, my, my grandfather or my great-grandfather if you know where Morrison's is at the end of the Heathway, yep. if you turn left, my grandfather lived on the fourth house on the left-hand side. Wow. So as a, as a little boy, you know, my mum, my family, they, you know, they all know Dagnum. I know Dagnum were, in fact, we sponsored at Dagnum and Redbridge for a period of time wow. at the football club. So it's it's close to my heart. Yeah. So it's it's a great place. What was your schooling like in Dagenham? I mean, the, the demographics of Dagenham have changed tremendously since you were a kid, but what was the schooling like? Yeah, so I went to a, a school called Henry Green's, um, which was just off of Green Lanes itself. It was great. Uh, so it, was a, it wasn't a small school, it was quite big. Um, and I sort of remember it more than anything else for the, the fact that we had this huge playing ground, all concrete, about the top end was like a short field that was, we were surrounded by houses and we used to go at the top end and, and play footy quite a lot. And there was a, a remarkable bloke, a teacher there, a bloke called John Allen. And do you remember when Grain, Grain Jewel came on to Yeah, yeah, of course. I he think. was pre-Bullet Baxter. Right. He, he was a bit of a bloke. Um, he was chiseled, he was good looking, but he was hard as nails and was all sort of young ankle biters and, uh, Dare I say again, I think that was uh, one of the first lessons in sort of discipline that sort of was really sat with us all. You know, when Mr. Allen came in the classroom or out on the playing field, you behaved. You paid attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I really wish we all led Mr. Allen's in the schools now. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't envy the, <clears throat> the school teachers any more than I envy the police, to be fair. But that that discipline and, of course, the discipline within the family unit as well, Yeah, which yeah. is something that, we both, it would appear we both grew up with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I had a wonderful upbringing as a child. Um, as I was the eldest of four kids. 
Um, my dad was a, a permanent night worker. He worked for Royal Mail. Um, my mum was an hairdresser um, and she did three or four other sort of jobs as well. And I think the, the big standout thing with my mum was she was the governor. And if we misbehaved, we felt the back of her hand. Whereas when my daddy had just come home and say, I'm disappointed. <laughs> you know, and it didn't have to say any more than that. But like with my mum, she was, um, you know, thankfully I've still got both my parents. Um, and back in the day, my mum used to, and I think it might be where I get a lot of it from, she used to look out for all the kids around her way. Um, the reason I mentioned my mum done three or four jobs because that's how it was. It, it was tough. It, yeah. It, you know, in the early 70s. There weren't a lot about money-wise, and um, my mum used to have to do those jobs to literally put money on the table. And it was funny, me and my sister, who happens to be a teacher now, we were only talking about this the other day, and sort of saying our mum used to used to make our, our clothes for us or the next-door neighbour. Yeah. God, we was the fashion statements at Dagnum, Dagnum at some times, I can assure you. The Heathway um, boys. Oh, goodness <laughs> me. Some of the clothes were outrageous, you know, um, and very uncomfortable. But that's what we had, and that's what we got on with. But my mum used to arrange trips for all the kids around, sort of, especially from our school. She had arranged coach trips to go and see the Christmas tree at Trafalgar, or she'd arrange trips to um, the theatres to go and see a panto. And she'd get all the kids together, and she worked out a deal with a local coach company. Um, and on one sort of event that she did, we went to to Wembley to see the Harlem Globetrotters, like the back in the bright early 70s. Yeah. So you had Meadow Lot Lemon and Curly, oh, wow, yeah, all the originals. And my mum, being a ballsy sort of lady she is, once they'd done their show, um, she actually jumped over the barrier, had a scuffle with security, and went up to that Meadow Lot Lemon and said, look, I've got all these kids from a local kiddie zone. Can you sign some autographs? How brilliant. And um, sure enough, they'll come over, photographs and How autographs. Brilliant. And I think, you know, as sort of time progressed um yeah it sort of made me a bit more aware of people around us and you know just be thankful for what you got oh yeah um, you know and i think as i've gone through my life that's always sat pretty solid with me like you know so and they mold you into the person that you are today you know the 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 standards that we we hold dear to our heart are the standards that our parents had mm. the problem we've got as as generations go on Unless parents have the standards, their kids are going to be lost. Absolutely. I think one thing, again, that from, from our time was the fact that we was always told to say, yes, please, no, and thank you in the right place. Yeah. Anything else was a little bit incidental. It didn't really matter. But as long as you got them things right. Yeah, absolutely. And he was courteous, you know. And again, from my old man when he was at um, Mount Pleasant up in Farringdon there, he was a big darts player. In fact, he was a darts captain for the Mount Pleasant team. And he was hardly ever at work. He was always out on the lash playing darts. <laughs> and we used to get invited to go up and watch him play. And, you know, he was really good, I've got to say, um, being a little bit biased, but he won a shed load of trophies. But always makes you to turn around and say, you know, Pat, what wonderful kids you've got. You know, we, we misbehave, don't get me wrong, but we knew our P's and Q's. Yeah. Um, and again, that's just down to mum and dad. You know, the way they sort of brought us up. So you, you, you touched on it earlier, but you went and played football. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a West Ham fan. I make no apologies <laughs> for it. And, and bear in mind that we did win the World Cup in 1966. <laughs> um, but of course, Alf Ramsey's from Beacon Tree. Yep. He's, you know, he's a, it's a great sporting area. Um, the brilliant Bobby Moore, all, all those people, they all come from the East End. They, they were all the heart and soul of my club. What was it like playing football in that area when you knew you had all those legends, and they were legends yeah. in those days? What was your aspiration at that time? I think like any young kid in, in the 70s, uh, it was to be a professional football player. Um, uh, and I sort of played a lot of football um, up at Valentine's Park, which is yeah, close yeah. to yourself, as you said. Parslow's Park, yeah. um, that was sort of my home ground for both Saturday and Sunday teams. Um, and I got to play a good standard of football. I grew up um, playing with the likes of Tony Adams. You know, from a very young age, we uh, played against each other. Um, Tony went to Eastbrook School, if I remember, and I went to Warren, and we played against each other there. And our Saturday and Sunday teams, we'd always end up playing against each other. Um, we then went on to play representative football for Barking and Dagenham District for Essex County, yada, yada, yada. Um, Tony Cotter used to go to school with him. I used to keep him out of the sixth form team because, you know, back in the day, Tony was an amazing athlete. Me and Tony held, looking at me now, you wouldn't believe it, but we have records for 400 metres, 800 metres. Tony was an amazing athlete. Um, who else did we play, play with? Johnny Moncur. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, again, Saturday team. Um, and, yeah, I was I was really lucky. And speaking about West Ham, as a very young guy, I was down there. And I used to I used to suffer terribly with my Achilles ill or Achilles tendons. And I used to have, to have uh, treatment in Ross Jenkins' place across the road because the physio wasn't in the ground. It no. was across, across the way. And a couple of people you just mentioned, I used to be in the treatment room and I'd have Bobby Morland next to me, Trevor Brookin. You oh, know, he's one. He is Frankie one Lampard senior, and to me, they they were just football players like me, and I was only young. Yeah, but when I think back now, I'm like bloody hell. You know, I spent time in a treatment room as a child with these absolute legends oh, yeah. of, of the football world. You know, I still see uh, Sir Trev at West Ham. Uh, he still gets up there with his wife, and he's such a gentleman. Mm. I mean, he's a proper. It's amazing that he's a football. His dad was a copper. Seriously? Yeah, his dad, and I think his brother was a copper as well. But wow. Yeah. So, um, but he he tells a story that his old man made him go and get exams. If he wanted to be a, a player of football, that's fine. But he had to get his exams, and he's a, he's a good businessman as well. Mm, mm. But he's a thoroughly nice bloke. Uh, you know, it, football for me was my passion, and as I went through my schooling, um, I wasn't. Overly academic, but I was doing all right. But then football just took over. You know, I'd be I'd be that bloke that would be sat in the classroom looking at the football pitch with nothing on it other than the white lines and the grass. Yeah. But just imagining my school game that afternoon. So distracted from the schoolwork, it was unbelievable. It used to give me a lot of trouble. But yeah, that that was my aspiration. I was playing four times a weekend. I was training midweek, playing midweek. Um, and it was just very much all consuming. I'm one of them rare blokes as a young fella, and I had no interest in cars or motorbikes or anything. Or girls, clearly, thankfully, um, but mechanically, cars and bikes and that—I've no idea. I can't even wire a plug to this day because I've got no interest <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah, oh, I always remember 
my my dad is is smash, smashing, and like you, I'm I'm really lucky. My parents are still alive, and my in laws are still alive, and um, but my dad comes from a, a big family, and he, he I also remember he used to stick the wires in the in the plug with, with a couple of matches. <laughs> Sounds like my old father, or he's, or, he's, yeah. or he's put another plug on the top so that the wires are going. You know? <laughs> I mean, nowadays, you'd, and as a kid, you'd copy. Yeah. So y- you've you've done your schooling. You played your football. Um, I understand you got released by West Ham. I'm really sorry to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that. But so, what happens next? What happens in your life? How, what year are we at? And how so, are you? this would have been I left school in '83. Um, back in the day, it was a lot easier to get work than it is now, currently. Yeah. Um, and you were um, 16 in '83? 16, yeah, 16. Um, and it was sort of like, well, what do I want to do? Still playing sort of semi-pro football at that time. Um, and it, I suppose I was looking at that, but I ended up working in a, got a job uh, or an apprenticeship um, in a factory over in Chabalief. It was like a carbon factory. And I used to make parts for aircraft and submarines. Okay. And so I was in there doing my apprenticeship and there was a geezer in there who had recently left uh, the tank regiment. And he, we just sort of had a bit of banter and whatever. And he, and he said a few things and he went, you're wasted in here. So like, what do you mean? He went, look at you, he says, you're putting stuff in the press, you're carving that off, you get your micrometer thing and you measure and it's no good in the bin. He said, go and do a real job, go and join the army. I was like, oh, you might have sown a seed there. Um, so I went down to Romford, our local recruiting office, um, had a chat with the sergeant in there, and he sort of asked all the daft questions. What do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? I said, you know what, mate? I've, I've no idea. It just sounds like a good thing. I want to play football on a Wednesday afternoon. Basically, that was it. Because another lad I was at school with, his brother, ended up being in my regiment in the, uh, in the 3rd Battalion, the Royal Green Jackets. I'd heard a lot of stuff about his brother and what he was doing. And as an infantry regiment, you don't think of anything else other than sort of guns and tours of Ireland, especially that sort of period of time. People say, no, my brother goes all around the world. He's got this this bomb dog and blah, blah. So he doesn't actually do a lot of soldiering then. No, he's a keen football player, like you just said, Wednesday afternoon, sports afternoon. Yeah. Boom. Oh, that's, that's up my street. I'll have some of that. So when I went back for a, an interview, the same sergeant, he was a guardsman. He said, you thought any more about what you want to do? I said, yeah, Royal Green Jackets. But if I can't do that, I suppose parachute regiment. What do you mean you suppose a parachute regiment? I said, well, I can't see the point of jumping out of a perfectly good serviceable airplane. <laughs> you know, but I'm a little bit unhinged, so that might be up my street. <laughs> so he did that, he laughed. And I went away to Sutton Coalfield and... I did a three-day assessment up there and I smashed all the records up there for the fitness and, yeah, I surprised myself. And, I mean, I was as fit as a butcher's dog back in the day. And, um, right, interview, your first choice is a parachute regiment. I said, no, no, it's Royal Green Jackets. Well, when do you want to start? I said, well, as soon as possible. And I was sort of 17 and a bit then. And uh, it was a para-colonel who was interviewing me. And he said, oh, we don't, the next sort of pay company was in June or something. 
and this was sort of April time. And as he said that, the green jacket officer walked past. He went, we start in May. I went, oh, I'll have that then. It caused a bit of a stir in the office, but yeah, ended up in 1985, early 85, going to Winchester and, and starting my career with the Royal Green Jackets, which was uh, very tough. 20 weeks of hell, to be quite honest with you. Um, there was over 100 plus started. I think about 100, about 120 of us might have been a bit more than that. And I think 55 of us managed to get through the 20 weeks. So, uh, yeah, that was an achievement. And uh, joined a battalion out in Germany. And uh, on arrival, I sort of got shown to my room and then said, well, I was told, get your boots and your wash kit, get over the field. You're, you're playing for the company. You had an inter-company football match. Um, I managed to score a couple of goals and we won. On the Thursday, I was told, get your kit. You're playing for the battalion there, not the company. And we went away and we, we played against the SIGs, I think it was, who were based down in the main part of town in Cellar, where we were. Oh, you were Cellar? Yeah, uh, Cellar. Cellar. Yeah. Um, and we played against 14 SIGs and then we beat them and I managed to score a couple more. In that realisation, back at the um, recruiting office, all of a sudden was coming true. All I could see me doing was playing football. And it was great. Um, he sort of got recognised a little bit in the battalion. Mm. If he was a sportsman, then... Very rarely would you find yourself on guard duty or doing other bits and pieces. You'd be training. Don't you? you have to work hard, but it come with the, the benefits of you could have a bit of steak for your dinner as opposed to the slot they were dishing out. And uh, yeah, it was great. Loved it. It's interesting because as a kid, um, my dad was stationed in Munster, so we we lived out there. Not that I remember anything of it, but um, sports. All my friends that have been in the armies, if they were sports minded, they lived off the fat of the land. Yeah. And that said, that followed into the police as well. Certainly in my early days in the police service, if you played for the right football team within the police yep. and your deputy chief constable was a footballer, guess what? You're the one, who, <laughs> if you got your exams, yeah. you got promoted yeah. quite quickly. <laughs> and I've got some mates who, and they're lovely people, but they've gone, you know, they went through the ranks pretty quickly. Some have got to the rank of chief superintendent. Yeah. Should and that all came off the back of their, their sporting yeah. Yeah. achievements. Yeah. Well, when I joined the police much later in life, um, there was an element of that. Um, one of the superintendents, a um, bloke called Miles Flood. And his oh, yeah, I know Miles. So yeah, Miles, yeah. they're keen on his rugby, obviously, with his brother yeah, playing yeah, yeah. for England. And nice on, man. Oh, lovely man. Um, but unfortunately, he got his legs done um, by the job. Um, and Miles came up to us one day and he just sort of said, I know you play football, he says, but we're a bit short. We're playing against a Stevenage first team. Can you help us out? So I was like, oh, I ain't played rugby since I was a kid. And going back to those names I mentioned earlier, Jason Leonard used to go to our school when he was in the year below me. Yeah. Um, and he was a big boy then. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And I was like, again, not really played since uh, those sort of days. And I might have played once for the battalion. Um we went over to Stevenage, and um, within 15 minutes, I'm on the side with three broken ribs. Oh. What can you do? Well, not a lot. You see, football player, scrum after that, do. And then, yeah, went in. And, uh, yeah, 15 minutes, and it was the hardest drive home ever. Back to work the following day, because everyone had said, 
30, you're going to hurt yourself. Yeah. Like, no, no, I'll be, be fine. It's just I'll keep out of the way. And sure enough, three broken ribs. And I couldn't sort of say it to work. Oh, I can't come in today because, you know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, but no, the army was brilliant. Um, sort of only did three years, got a bit bored um, with the tours that were getting promised that the tours never materialised. I'd met the wife in 87 when we came back from some jungle training. Um, she was then going into the Met Police. Um, and it was just that case of, well, give her a chance. Um, and she sort of started her career as I was down in the Falklands. Um, and I came back from the Falklands and she was embedded then into the Met Police and started her career off at uh, Limas. Um, she spent a couple of years at Limas and then to Bow, then I think Alban, and then she ended up working in the yard doing all sort of trial protection stuff and all that. Is, is so, she retired now? She's been out three years now. Oh, okay. yeah. So she managed to do her 30 years as opposed to myself. <laughs> what year did you exit the army? So I left the army um, mid 88. Um, we got married in 89. Um, and it was that point I went on to do um, some close protection stuff. But funny enough, I actually uh, got into the fire brigade, London fire oh, brigade. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I was really fortunate. Um, the squad that I was in, uh, Squad 289, um, never forget it, 12 of us out of 14 were ex-military. So we, in our first week, every day on parade, we was like the dog's nuts. I mean, albeit we had the old style yellow leggings and the old uh, tunics and belt and axe and stuff. We were very sort of well presented, so much so that on the Friday of that week, the senior squad were passing out and the officiating officer came out onto the fire ground, came straight to us and started asking questions because he thought we were the, the guys passing out and he had to be gently pushed around to the, the guys around the other end of the yard who, who were passing out. Um, and, yeah, it was great, but unfortunately um, got to week six um, and people in my family sort of, dare I say, I'm not going to say my family were like the mafia, but we had some proper head honchos in from my dad's side of the family, and I just started dying. And it just sort of, the family was all over the shop. Um, explained this to the training DO, and he was like, just get yourself squared away for a week and then come back. Well, I, I left, but never got back in again. Mm. Um, but I don't regret it to a point. Um, then I got involved with sort of like looking after celebrities. Um, we go back a step. When you were in the military, do you mm. regret leaving the army? Yes, I do. Um, and I say that with a bit of passion because I left during a sort of transitional period when we'd come back from Germany, based in Colchester, spearhead inf infantry battalion, ready to go. And we was always ready to go and do nothing at that point. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, tours of Ireland were coming back up again. Um, the Balkans conflict um, happened. And then you had Iraq and Afghan. So I do regret leaving um, because there was a lot I wanted to do as a young man when I was fit and focused. Um, I guess my sort of ambition was to, at one stage, hopefully end up uh, in special forces. That was the, the drive. Um, a few of the lads that I joined with had, had made that mark and, and got in. Um, Dare I say, Andy McNabb's one of our patrons. Right. And Andy was um, ex-2RGJ. Um, so, you know, got to meet him years and years ago. Um, 
But that was my drive, and so much so that I actually went to a, a reunion not long after being out and was basically asked or invited to go and join uh, the 4th Battalion, which is a territorial unit. And I ended up doing eight years on a training team. Oh, now. fantastic. And it was, it was great training everyone up. Again, the hardest thing was at that stage, we didn't have any kids and all these, what I call West type engagements were coming up to go and serve with a regular, a regular battalion, whether it be out in Ireland, uh, the Balkans, Iraq or whatever. But, for some reason, we weren't allowed to go because we were training the people that were going or possibly going to be what they call BCRs, you know, battle casualty replacements. Yeah. So, yeah, it used to, again, really wind me up that I couldn't go and do what I'd always join the army to do. And that was, sounds a bit gung-ho, but doing my job as an infantry soldier. Yeah. You know, um, was never, never got to realise that. And you're within yeah. touching of actually achieving that, yeah. aren't you? all the time. All the time. You're yeah. just, it's just slightly out of reach. Yeah. Were you still in the military when you started your CP business? Or no. in the reserve in the reserves? I was in the reserves. Um I prior to joining the fire brigade, my uncle, um, bless him, he introduced me to a bloke that used to work within his building. Um he was just simply known as the German. And uh, he was a huge man. Um but Tony had started his career off uh, back in the late fifties, his best mate was Oliver Reed. Now they both used wow. to work the doors. They were both wrestlers, apparently. Now Tony was huge, um, and Tony was also a steeplejack stroke builder. But him and Oliver Reed used to run the doors in nightclubs around the West End. Um, and Oliver Reed started his career in that industry, um, doing what he did. And Tony just sort of carried on. And Tony looks after everyone from the Beatles through to your stars up, you know, whoever it was back in the 90s sort of thing. And he just approached me one day and said, look, I was labouring for him. He said, do you want to come and do some real work? So I went, what do you, what do you mean by real work? He said, just come do some work for me, doing the CP stuff. And he just dropped me straight into the, I don't know, into the fireplace um, with Jerry Lee Lewis, um, who was an extraordinary individual to work with. <laughs> I use that term loosely. Um, very demanding individual. Um, and I sort of learned a lot from that job and I looked after him for a, a number of jobs throughout that year. Um, and then it just went on to looking after other people um, from TV, film, music industry. Um, and it just sort of just seemed to be like a natural progression and mm. this sort of, I was very much aware of my surroundings, um, you know, and switched on. And, yeah, um, it, it just sort of evolved into to what it was, where eventually I'd built up uh, sort of enough of a contact list. I was working, eventually then working for a bloke called Jerry Judge, who had a um, music and arts security company. And they used to do all the big stuff up the West End and all the big royal film premieres. and. Um, I just thought I'm missing a trick here. Yeah? I can do what Jerry's doing. You know, it's it's difficult, but as long as you're on, on, on point, your, yeah, got it. you got it. And an opportunity came up. Um, had a chat with another fella. Um, we found ourselves bidding for one of the Star, Star Wars uh, films. Star uh, was it Phantom Menace? Right. 
And before I knew it, I found myself sat in the Odeon Leicester Square in the office with uh, royalty protection, top people from 20th Century Fox, uh, the Odeon Leicester Square, numerous other sort of entities. And um, I ended up winning the contract, um, which surprised a lot of people because me and this other lad who'd set this little company up, nobody had heard of us because we were that new. Mm. Um, I got all the pre-screening stuff, all the pre-interviews, all the pre-press, um, the main event itself, the after-show party, and then the sort of wind down with the press and then getting all your A-listers back. Um a number of things happened on the night of the event, which was quite funny um, from some aggrieved parties, let's put it that way. Um, but we managed to keep a lid on it. It did go a bit peaked on. Um, for a, about a minute or so, there was a little bit of chaos, which was instigated by certain individuals. Um, but, yeah, we got on top of it, and then we, we really took off. We ended up running the London Fashion Week, and huge jobs for OK Magazine. Um, just lots of good work coming in. But then, unfortunately, the guard set up with, he um, went down the bank and cleared our uh, our account out and buggered off to the other side of the world, which was a bit unfortunate. And you go from hero to zero in that game overnight. Yeah, and, and they're a fickle crowd, aren't oh, they? Just a little bit. So yeah. uh, I found myself on my ass uh, with a huge amount of debt um, because I had to pay the fellas. You know, I was working with them. And, you know, I'm always and will always be a team player. Um, yeah. You know, I'd never ask someone to do something I wouldn't do myself, all those sort of shenanigans. And, yeah, also I've got a lot of people, a lot of, um, dare we say, professional people that you don't really want to get on the wrong side of. And, and it's about operational credibility as well. Of we've course. had it where people have gone wrong on us and we've always made sure that the people that have done the work have been paid because yeah. – it's not their fault or their problem. It's my problem because yeah. we've actually we've got into bed with somebody who's, who's knocked us. Yeah, yeah. But interesting times, I've got to say. It was hard work, but um, I enjoyed it and just took it for what it was. And, you know, yourself, you, you get asked lots of questions. Oh, what's it like looking after that person? What they like? It's just probably one of the most boring jobs you could ever yeah. do. But people don't see that. It's all the glitzy side of it. Yeah. Um, but when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it, it's – a pretty sad way of living when you've got to tell someone what time to get up, what to put on, what time they've got to be in the car, if there are any sort of, dare we say, issues that we need to be aware of. Um, you've got to keep on your game, but you're basically running that person's life room. Unless if they talk to you. Exactly. Unless they've got someone doing their air as a, the intermediate and you speak to them to speak to, yeah. you know, yeah. I, we, we work with a, a number of lovely people um, who – come from the celebrity world, if you like, and have always got time. There's one particular person who I won't name at the moment, but, you know, if I send him a message, I'll always get a message back. His, his people, you know, he's just absolutely delightful, and you'll yeah. see him on the TV every single day. Then you've got others that have got no time, but they forget where they come from. Absolutely. And they still have to get up and use the loo first thing in the morning <laughs> like everybody else. doesn't matter who they are. You've gone from... Being an entrepreneur, running your own business, was it immediately after that you thought, do you know, the police is the, the way forward? Do you know, it was a weird thing because of, like, the wife being in the Met Police. Lots of her colleagues used to say, why don't you join? And I used to get bored of saying, do you know what? I've lost count how many application forms I filled in. 
for the Met, for Essex Police, for Kent Police, for the BTP, for any force. Uh, I'm just sick to death of it. I left the military with an exemplary record. Um, I don't have or didn't have at that time a criminal record. Um, and I just cannot see why I can't get in. Um, so I'd given up on the idea. Um, and I was working with a fella um, on the bill. Um, and he said to us, you know, we end up being good mates. Um, he said, do you know what? I had a lot of recruiting. I said, do you know what, Mick? I'm not filling in enough. He said, seriously, mate. He says, fill it in. They're looking for ex-squaddies. I said, I've been out of the army a few years now. Anyway, within, I would suggest three months of filling this application in. Um, there I am at the old old headquarters of BTP over in Tavistock uh, Square uh, or place and sitting going through the examinations side of life. I Literally, I was working for a, a big corporate company as part of their in-house security team. So I'd just done a night shift, went off to do this bloody exams first thing and sitting there. And I was right at the front. Um, me and academia, we've never really got on. Never really shook hands. And um, the inspector, Mick Foster, what a bloke. Um, he says, right, he says, exam's finished. He says, what we're going to do, call your name out, pick your kit up and come out of the door. So we're all sitting there thinking, right, who's going to get called out first? And the bloke sat to my left, gets called up. You know, he just think, oh, shit, here we go. And Mick come back in and he just looked at us and went, right, congratulations, you've all passed. And there was this like <laughs> weird feeling, you know. Um, and then we started training. Um, we went to uh, our place over in Surrey, which I've forgotten the name of now, ironically. Um, but in between going from there, we went to Ashford mm. uh, oh, and did, sort of, did the main sort of core of our police training. And again, we the banter was phenomenal because there was a lot of ex-military people there as well um and all the ex-service men and women it was it was great because you you could have that banter but then you had to be a little bit choosy with <laughs> who else you might have spoken to yeah you know yeah no i i, I understand that interesting enough i i experienced exactly the same with the you stay you go yeah. situation i remember that vividly and also the the banter, and I I joined in eighty six eighty seven. So, and we had a lot of soldiers in there. I was a kid by yeah. comparison, um, but there was there was still that banter which built the camaraderie. That element has gone, yeah, um, because you know people deem it to be politically incorrect yeah. or or whatever it is, yeah. But it's you know some of it's character building. There's nothing oh, absolutely, you know. I mean. When I was out doing my street duties, um, so the, the tutor constable that was looking after me, a bloke called Dougie Fairburn, Scottish fella, lovely guy. And we used to go out, and Dougie was very knowledgeable, very knowledgeable. Um, however, people used to look at me because I looked older than Dougie as being the tutor constable, and Dougie was my tutor. And we'd often get approached, and people come to me, and I'm like looking at Dougie, Help me out, mate, because I ain't got a Scooby. You know what I mean? Um, and you're based at West Ham at this, so at this time? So during that 
before I got based at West Ham, I was based up at, we had a training unit up at Baker Street. Oh, okay, yeah. So we used to work out at Baker Street and, you know, you'd get called upon to do anything just to get your, was it the PDR thing signed off? That's it, yeah. Um, and I got an attachment to CID, which was fantastic because there was um, they were doing a program about the BTP at the time. Um, I forget what it was called now. But it, it went out on national TV and they followed us out on jobs and whatever. And my first introduction into CID was rack up at the police station that we had then, just off of um, back of Tottenham Court Road, um, and go and have a briefing, go and have breakfast, go to one of the key station, hub stations. And at this point, as CID were really concentrating on uh, gang-related uh, offences, um, and I suppose it was a bit of a precursor to what is, we now know as county lines. Um, and we was looking after, well, was looking at a specific target, and it was a Russian fella, and he was into a bit of people trafficking and drugs and Christ knows, he was into a lot of stuff. And we were all talking, and then I just sort of caught sort of a glimpse of him. And the DS was like that. Right, and I'd already gone. He was like, Shannon, where are you going? And of course, no one had clocked this. This fellow was there. And uh, yeah, we ended up nicking him, and it was it was a good job, and CID got a partner back. And my tenure, dare I say, for my street duties, for the 10 week street duties that we had, I think I spent nine weeks with CID. Um, you know, come lunchtime, he was out on the pop. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, Oh, I like this. Yeah, you know, I could get, the bad old days. Could get used to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but then I went. Eventually, we, you know, we got through that period, and uh, I got signed off. Um, and I started my sort of policing career down at uh, West Ham on the underground, which was a very, very interesting couple of years. And and this is, I think, people lose sight of the fact that criminals have to get round. Absolutely. And the way they get around in central London, in the same way that most members of the public don't drive their own cars. They use the tube. Yeah. And you, I th- you your know, gang I th- members, all the drug dealers, the whole lot, they have to use the, the public rail yeah. system. And, and I've always say this. I think as my time went on in the BTP, I think that the, the changes sort of in the BTP now are so dramatic from when I was in. Um, and I joined in 2003. I was a very sort of, they called us mature students. I think I was about 33, mm-hmm. 34 at the time. Um but yeah, the the style of policing, it was a no nonsense sort of style of policing because it was such a dangerous environment. And, you know, there's there's people that we both know from from your old force and whatever. I mean, dare I say the piss taking was was unbelievable. You know, you're just a ticket collector, you're this that. I've caught murderers, I've caught rapists, yeah. I've caught terrorists, all because they've come within my jurisdiction, acting a little bit whatever, but enough to give me an interest. And because of the footprint that we had in the BTP, and I'll always say this, we probably were the best kept secret in in the policing world because of how unique our, our footprint was. You know, we didn't need reasonable grounds to suspect someone of committing offence. If they were near to a station, well, they're trespassing. It's private property. And that was my in. I didn't need anything else. I could just approach someone. Well, mate, you're travelling. Uh, well, what's it got to do with you, BTP? You do realise you're on a on sort of private property. 
needs to really throw people out. Yeah. And then you just sort of engage in that conversation. And, yeah, we, we caught a lot of high-profile people um, just through that means. Um, and it, it become a very interesting um, well to be involved in because it was so unique. And I ended up being, dare I say, quite a good thief taker. Um, and before you knew it, I was getting secondments to various departments and whatever. Um, and me and my old partner basically got left to police, dare we say, the southeast when we was on the underground um, in almost whichever guys we, we decided mm. um, because we were getting results. But then that will come to, dare I say, a shitty stop because in 2005 we had the bombings, um, which obviously, again, I th- on a personal level, it really changed me, but I think it changed the whole demographic of policing from that point in. Yeah, usually. If, if I just go back one step before we go on to that, and it's around the stop and search element, given that um, the, there's a lot of criticism of the police at the moment around stop and search, and I've got my views, um, which are, well, you know, I, I don't want any child to get killed. Mm. And there's a there's a cry that there's a disproportionate amount of black males being stopped, but it's also black males that are killing other black males. So there's, there has to be. What was your experience around the stop and search element, given that it's twenty years ago? Yeah. What was it like? You know, because it's a dangerous world underground. Oh, for sure, absolutely. You, you've you've got a very small window to play in. I if you stop someone on a platform, especially if that uh, is a platform underground you've got the width of the platform and it's either you'll end up rolling about on the tracks and electrocution and all the other hazards that come with that, you know, trains. Um, and on the mainline stations, equally as difficult because you've got trains coming through a lot faster. Mm. Um, often I was deployed um, sort of solo. And back then you knew that if you hit your button, someone would be with you. Within five to ten minutes. When you say button, is on your radio, there's a, your pardon, there's a, yeah. on your airways. On your there's airways, a, there's a um, button that calls the emergency. Or uh, hopefully, support. someone will get to you. Um, but with stop and search, um, it was as difficult then as it probably is now. But I, th- I think that how can we put it without being too PC? When we stopped someone, we had the courage of our convictions. We had a little bit of knowledge about the law, and that's. When you nick someone, whether it be for an off-web, pointy articles or whatever, you go to custody and the custody sergeant's there to guide you through that process if you've got it slightly wrong. However, the amount of people that we stop, especially young black lads, um, you know, you get the the clucking of the, the teeth at you and you're racist, you're there. Well, in your eyes, I might be racist, but why are you carrying this nine-inch knife? Yeah. You know, um, so you're doing what? Oh, it's to protect yourself. That's great. That's the, the offence complete. Thanks yeah. right. Let's go and talk about it in, in an interview. And the general public don't really get to see that side of it. You put yourself in danger every time every you day. stop and search someone. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, when um, all the Stephen Lawrence stuff come along, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a tragic loss of life. His mum and dad went on a crusade. And this is just my humble opinion. Um, when she became a dame, she really, uh, dare we say, 
put the brakes on, stop and search, because as far as she was concerned, it was such a racist point of the police. Um, but she's not, how can I put it? She lost a child to knife crime, which is just so tragic, irrespective of the colour of his skin. But as you've just said, the likelihood of young black males carrying weapons was stronger than it was young white males carrying weapons. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, white males, yet yeah, carry knives and whatever else. But a proportionate side of that was, unfortunately, from the black community. And, you know, back in the day, it was tough, but we just used to get into the gangs and into these groups. And it wasn't being sort of stereotyping people. You're in certain areas, you was working off intelligence um, that would suggest that, especially around the East End of London, and then when we sort of progressed into the West End or North London, you could identify the gangs by the colours they were wearing. Notting Hill was always uh, a buoyant time, for want of a yeah. better word, um, because you could actually get in amongst it um, and police. And I think the biggest or the saddest part about stop and search, and you hear all too often, you see it on the news of police officers being hacked, stabbed, whatever, they've put their life on the line so they're doing their job. But by doing that, they've actually stopped what I would suggest would be an innocent person from losing their life through knife crime. And I think if the police were allowed to go back into, I'm not going to suggest the good old days of the special patrol groups no. and stuff. However, to take back the streets, the police need to be confident, have the backing of their chief constables, commissioners, whatever, to be allowed to get back out there, get amongst it. It will upset a lot of people. Yeah. However, I think it would really draw in the knife crime uh, problem that we have and that exists. You know, even local to me on Saturday in Romford, another person was stabbed. And, you know, back in our day as kids, we never heard of it. No. Never heard of it. You'd have a fight and, and that would, was it. that would be it. But it's just all too common. And again, like yourself, Paul, I think, the amount of times you stop people and you've taken these bloody great big Rambo knives yeah. off of them and you're just sort of like, wow. Or you're fighting with someone and you eventually get them locked up in cuffs, pat them down, and you pull out something like a blade that Zorro would have and you just, why would you be carrying that? I, I've just, I don't get it. You Those know? zombie knives, they leave you cold. I, I read an interesting stat the other day. I think it's 13% of the population in the UK are from black minority groups. But 45% of knife crime victims and victims of violence, 45% come from the same group. Now, as a parent, if my kid got stopped and they had a knife in their pocket, then the stop check has prevented them from becoming a murderer. murderer. Absolutely. But if they, get, if they haven't got a knife in their pocket it's potentially stopped them from becoming a victim. Absolutely. And that's that's where I come from. I'm, I'm a nothingist. Yeah. You know, I really am a nothingist. Every Everybody who's a, who's an ist is, <laughs> has always got a friend who's, who's black or gay. Yeah. I am really a nothingist. And all, all my black and gay friends will tell you, you know, I'm not allowed to be a misogynist because... Yeah, it, for that reason. Do you know what? I'll never forget we had a job. was at plain clothes. It was a Saturday. Um, we was going up and down the district line between West Ham and, and Upminster. And we were going back 
to the nick. Um, to either wrap up the day, it had been pretty non-productive. And we were just coming towards Upney Station. Radio went off. Uh, any unit of 10 Upney, uh, male victim is uh, stabbing. So, yeah, we'll be there in less than a minute. We're literally pulling in. Any updates, uh, LAS required, blah, blah, blah. No, the uh, the victim has declined all medical assistance. So it's like, okay. It's sort of, we went up from zero to 10 very quickly, 10 being the high point of light alert and ready yeah. to go, to back down to sort of one or two. So it's going to be, what, scratch, a nothing, whatever. As we turned up, it gets off, and there's about half a dozen of us in our little team at the time. And we just start bimbling up the, the ramp towards the booking hall. And all of a sudden we can hear all this shouting and screaming. I'm like, now what, what's going on here? And then sort of we see the staff and they're screaming and shouting. It goes up. I'll never forget it. Outside the Boswick gates, which are the metal gates that go across the front yeah. of the station, I just see a pair of size 11s pointing skywards. And I'm thinking, hold on, that was somebody who didn't want any medical assistance. Mm. I went out there and this young white goth kid. One stab wound to his abdomen. He was as dead as a dodo. And we had missed the perpetrator by about 30 seconds. Wow. Um, so we start doing all that stuff that you do, CPR, and I'm trying to plug him up, you know, and my mate's calling him for LAS and Hems is coming in. It's it's chaos. And then we've got the Met turn up, who a little bit cheesed off because it's sort of like potentially on their ground. On their ground. Yeah, yeah. got the old big murder thing going on there. Uh, LAS turn up we was literally round the corner from St George's Hospital in Good Maze and uh, I'll get you in the back of the ambo um, and I'm still working on this kid and the technician's in the back with me he's trying to get a line in and off we go a bizarre experience I was a response driver at the time but being in the back of an ambulance when it's going all the stuff's coming out of the shelving and we're getting covered in bandages and I'm in a bloke like pissing ourselves laughing, but trying frantically to save this kid. Kid's life, yeah. And I knew he was dead. The technician knew he was dead, but we we had to give that lad the chance. Absolutely. And no. we, we got into St George's, and they took him through to the the crash unit. And now I've got start thinking about crime scenes, this, that, and the other. And I'm shouting at this this nurse blesser. I need bloods and clothing and statements. Did it? And she went, don't worry, it'll all be done. And about 30 minutes later, um, she come back outside and she went, time of death. Uh, thanks for all you did. And I didn't even think about it. And being told that the young kid was officially dead, it didn't really register with me because in my head, I've got, that policey thing going on, I've got to preserve, I've got to take an ambulance off the run now. That's part of the crime scene. Yeah. I've got about 30 people in that crash unit I've got to get statements from, bloods. And and then I, I rang up our lot and I spoke to a DI uh, from Bishopsgate. And he said, look, preserve the scene. So, well, I've already done that. It's all taped off, blah, blah, blah. I said, the Met Police are there, actually. Excuse me. Um, he said, Right, go and sit with the deceased in the mortuary. So, really? Yeah. He went, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So I goes down the mortuary and I watch this lad uh, be, you know, put in the fridge. So I records all the bits and pieces that I need to in my pocket notebook. 
And then I looked at the, the name above where this young kid had gone in, and it was my surname. And you know when you think, hold on, I don't know many Hayes around this area. And after about half an hour of sitting there, the mortuary assistant came in and said, do you want a brew? I was like, yeah, yeah. I said, but before we have a brew, can we open up that? I said, because it's just doing my head in. So I went, somehow? I said, well, that's my surname. Oh, right. You ain't lost anyone in the last 24 hours, have you? And I went, well, not to my knowledge. So we opened up the fridge, I'd looked, and it, thankfully it wasn't. But then that whole event of this young kid come crashing into me. Yeah. And I didn't know whether it was, I was upset, I was angry, or whatever. Um, so from that point in, I've dealt with a lot of people with knives and off-webs. But that really brought it home for me because when I went out again the following day, I had a bit of a BME bonnet, even more than I did probably before yeah. about knife crime. It polarises you, yeah. your views. Yeah, it really did. How old were you when you saw your first dead person? Strange uh, question, I know, but... I suppose it was before I joined the job, it was probably one of my family members. Um, yeah, you'd probably see them in the mortuary. Uh, so I would imagine, other than seeing, there are, say, photographs and bits and pieces when yeah. I was in the military. Yeah. Um, my first real dead person was probably a family member, so I've probably been early 20s. See, I was 21, and I remember it to this day. It was a, a lady who died of a stroke. Mm. That's the first dead person I'd, I'd ever seen. Yeah. And, I've, you know, like you, I've seen a, a number since. Yeah. Um, but it's quite – because people don't experience death until no. it's the nearest and dearest. They don't deal with – the the ramifications of somebody dying. I mean, the first fatal, fatal road collision I went to, I remember all of them. Yeah. Um, so we're now 2005, yeah. okay? 7th of July, 2005. I remember where I was on that day. I was, I was working on a murder. And I remember uh, seeing it on the news. And I remember how I felt at that time. And interesting enough, I've just been talking to the girls um, before you came and they said, oh, what's Gary going to say? And, I, and I, I told them. And Emma said, I was on the tube. I just got off the tube. I was just, I just got into work because she worked for Lloyd's at the right, time. Blimey. She said, I just got off the tube, just got into work. She said, and I remember it happening. And I remember people coming in, having been on the, on the tube and I remember, this is her, having to walk. They walked from Liverpool Street to Stratford because that was the only way they were going to get home. Yeah, yeah. So for, for me, um, I wasn't actually at work at the time. Um, I was part of their sort of, how can I describe it, the new all-singing, all-dancing BTP counter-terrorism team. Right. It, it was new in its formation. Um, and it was... Uh, going to be, how it was sold to us, a very proactive group of cops. Um, so to build up to 7-7, seven, seven, my wife was heavily pregnant with our third son. Now, she was based um, over at Holborn at the time. Yeah. And like she'd done with our first two boys, she actually worked right up until the due date and then sort of went into labour and was whisked away and blah, blah, blah. 
thankfully, um, our third son come cut three days early. Had he come on the due date, she would have been on the all-go train that went up. Right. We got that down to a very fine timeline of about a minute. She would have been on it, there's no doubt. Wow. Um, so she called me, and I was in Tesco's buying some nappies, and she went, oh, you heard what's happened on the underground? Uh, no, I'm in Tesco's buying nappies. But straight away, my mind's thinking, because we knew something was afoot at the time, but like most terrorists or acts of terrorism, you know it's going to happen, but you can't time, time in, place in, whatever. So I went, right, I'll phone you back in a minute. So I got on the phone to one of the lads, and I could hear the, the blues going. And he just said, Go, get your grab kit, mate. We've just been bombed. I was like, fuck you now. Right, okay. He went, stand by. So we've just been bombed again. So I'm right, I'm not going to be able to get in the day. The network's going to close down. I said, obviously, the phone's going to go down soon. Um, I'll be in tomorrow. Because I, London would have been as it was. It was gridlocked. gridlocked I couldn't yeah. even drive in. Um, so I went back in the following day. Um, and I ended up running a serial um, at Charing Cross and I was there for two days and it was just pandemonium because the network was trying to, I don't know, redesign itself, keep it running, keep keep London working. Um, and we had a couple of incidents down there before I move on to the sort of crux of this where underground staff and some BTP cops have access to the tannoy system on the underground. Yep. Still to this day, have no idea how this person or who this person was. Um, but I managed to get on the tannoy at Charing Cross and announced that the next incoming train had a bomb on it. Oh, my life. The station was packed. I mean, it was packed to being dangerously overflowing. Yeah. And you can imagine the panic and mayhem. And as this train come in, I was just thinking, this, this can't be happening. And the train doors opened and people were just rammed in there. And I forced my way on and I sent members of my team along the platform to do exactly what I was about to do. Got into this carriage and I just said, right, if anyone's got any personal items with them, I want you to pick them up and show me. And do you know what? It's almost regimentated where everyone picks up bags, newspapers, mm. and just held them in the air. Got everyone off, got the station cleared. It happened twice whilst we was there. Um, so we couldn't find who the, who the sort of perpetrator that was. Um, the following day, my boss came up and he said, uh, right, we're sort of like three days into the, the aftermath now of the bombings. He said, um, you're ex-military, in you? So I went, yeah, a long time ago. He went, good. Sort of looking at him. And he went, people are falling down at the Honourable Artillery Company where the temporary mortuary yeah. is. I need you to go. So I said, well, no, I said, as far as I know, it's, it's sergeants that are, he went, yep. Yeah. He says, congratulations. There you go. Off, off you, Todd. And I spent the next two months uh, down at the HAC helping to identify the 52 victims um, and process the body parts of all the other people um, and what was left of the bombers. Um, it was uh, not a pleasant job. By any means, and you know, I'd had my fair share of fatalities on the railway network at that point, anyway. Um, but yeah, it, it I, was I, I think it's, I, I, I think that, um, anybody listening, there are certain smells and noises and 
atmosphere that come with a mortuary. Yeah. A- a- any mortuary. You walk in there. I mean, I do find post-mortems fascinating. Mm, yeah. I'll be honest Great with you. With you know, yeah. it's, it's a bit weird. I, I understand that. But there are, you know, the smell of chloroform. There's the all the other bits. Yeah. But when you're in a temporary mortuary and you've got 52 victims in there, that is magnified enormously. Yeah. What, what was that like working as as part of that team? It was um, it was amazing. It was a a multi force sort of operation. So the the guys that were primarily running the HAC were DVIs um, from the Met Police and some other forces. And they'd not long been back from dealing with the final bits and pieces from the Boxing Day tsunami. Of course. So it was like he was listening to some of the stuff they'd dealt with. Um, and I remember the first victim that we we went to start doing what we were going to do with them. Um, the skipper in the, in the team said to us, look, he said, um, you don't have to do this. And I'm going to tell you now what you're about to look at will just blow you away. All right. So if you don't want to do it, it's not a problem. I mean, the lad we were, I was with was like, now we're built right. And we opened up the first bag and it was indescribable. Um, bearing in mind that other than the, the victims from the bus bombing, all the other victims have been stuck in the trains on the tunnels. If you remember, it's really hot. Yeah. So decomposition was huge. I mean, I've, I've Rapid. seen... Oh, I've seen bodies in various states from being hit by sort of both underground trains and fast trains. But the decomposition and the blast injuries was like nothing I've ever seen. Um, and this first bag, a lot of them, in fact, I would suggest every bag that we had was double bag because of the content of the, I won't get too graphic, but the, the, the breakdown of the body. Yeah, it was that. And um, me and my mate just looked at each other, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, I just sort of turned around to this skip and went, going to need a big loaf of bread to mop up this bit of soup, wouldn't we? And he looked at us and he went, right, you be, you'll be all right. Um, and that's how it was. Um, we was all on first name terms, nicknames. Um, there were lots of mixed ranks in there. And I put my own sort of safeguarding in because obviously everyone now, the Sun newspaper being, I think, the... I can't think of a descriptive for it, but they managed to get what they perceived to be like these little grainy passport photos of the the victims. Um, now, to me, I showed the deceased as much dignity as I could, along with everyone else. Yeah, but it becomes too personalised if you know that that was Mister A from Place B, you know, whatever. Yes. Um, so, to me, they just followed the set of numbers that come with a DVI yeah. book. And um, DVI's uh, disaster. disaster victim identification, yeah. and um, there was sort of two two books. We had a UK book and then an Interpol book, which yep. was slightly different. Um, so one of my jobs was to having assisted with identification of that individual. Um, and bearing in mind, we never had any freezers for about four weeks, so the smell. Wow! Going back to your earlier point was it was honking and I mean it was awful. Um and ironically I think 
a good thing that set me up there was <laughs> next to our main sort of tent, we had like the little cook house. So you could go around, step out of our tent, and then there was a little one just around the corner and go and get a bacon roll and a, a brew. But the smell was just like, and people say, how on earth can you eat that? You know, red sauce dripping out me bacon roll. And yeah. It was just like, you just got on with it. Um, but that's what we do. Yeah, and I think it's probably will lead on to it, but being a police officer, irrespective of what force you're in or whatever part of emergency services, we normalise what quite clearly isn't normal. Yeah. To just help us to get through our day. Um, just sort of digressing a wee bit from the Montreal, we used to do f- sort of minimal 12, 14 hour days there. And I remember travelling back home uh, to where I live now in Hornchurch and I listened to members of the public whinging about the trains being disrupted, how it stopped them from getting down a pub or doing this, doing yeah. that. And I used to get quite angry listening to those conversations. And I'll never forget that a particularly bad day. Um, and it was a group of builders. You know when you sort of, you manage to get on the same train and is that familiarity where that, that's where they sit. And yeah. the, Well, one night was coming home and I was listening to this bloke gobbing off about how poor the police sort of um, work rate is in identifying who the bombers were and who they belonged to. And more importantly, how it was messing up these Friday nights, getting down a pub. And I lost the plot on the train. And I used to travel up uh, in civvies and, uh, you know, bear in mind it was still really hot. So invariably I'll be in shorts because that's what we used to wear yeah. in Moultrie, but put the white suits on and, and whatever else afterwards. Um, and I remember getting a grip of this geezer and throwing a few sentences into him and all his mates stood up and I was ready to take them all on. Mm. And I said to him, do you know what, fellas? I said, if you could have spent two seconds of your day it's where I've just been and what I've just seen and what I've dealt with and what I'm going to go back to tomorrow, then perhaps you might have a different point of view. And this bloke went, hey, in copper or something. And I went, yeah, funny enough, I am, mate, and I'm working in the Moultrie identifying all those people you've just been talking about. And bizarrely, the whole carriage went deadly mm. quiet. And I was like, I had steam coming out of me. Yeah. It's, in some respects, a little bit unprofessional, but I'd been there a couple of weeks and we was taking a lot of grief from the sort of the slow processes in identifying people. Um, and there was a, a family that had been on the news, uh, I think they were like... Uh, from Africa or somewhere like that, and they were desperate to find their son. Yeah. But of course, there's this, this issue that we're now being a bit racist in identifying the victims. Goodness me, you know, there's equality in the mortuary. There's oh, total equality. You absolutely. Yeah. Um, and that was winding me up because I knew we were doing our best. Yeah. And then this one guy, he at this group, he just stood up and went, oh, "I'm really sorry, mate, and thanks for what you're doing." And it was almost like a little snooker clap went around the the train carriage. Yeah. And I was just sort of like very angry, but thankfully we, we got close to my station on part. I got off, got in, and I'll never forget it. I went straight to my newborn baby and just held him. And apparently that night I went back with and forth between the other two boys' rooms and didn't go to sleep. I was just sort of like, I was in a bizarre place, Yeah, but I didn't know it. But that's, that's your emotions. And the, and the, the thing about it is, 
take away the police and the military aspect, we are human. Absolutely. We've got a human side to us. And having the banter in the, in a mortuary, rightly or wrongly, I, I think we should, yeah. you've got that element where you need that to get by. But if you display any of that banter within a normal police environment, guess what? You're on your oh, way. Absolutely. And you know what? We, as I say, everyone was nicknames. There was no rank. And people often ask me about oh, your PTSD. It, you know, you must be from dealing with this or dealing with that, you know, the blood snot and stuff. Well, clearly, yeah, it is part of it. And going right back to the early part of my childhood, I was sexually assaulted by two different blokes, um, babysitter. And football coach, would you believe? No which way. We've um, thankfully the football coach has um, just been found guilty of all these offences that he committed not only against me but other kids in the team and oh, sorry, lots man. of other victims. Um, and I'm going back to Snaresbrook for sentencing on the 13th. So all that's gone on in my early life, and, and often with people that have PTSD, there's often something from their childhood that will sort of develop or manifest itself yes. later on and kick off. The PTSD. Now, one of my jobs was to take the deceased through to a family viewing area. And this is where people struggle with my PTSD. Um, and I liaised with the flows, the family liaison officers. Yep. Um, and on this specific day, one of the mortuary technicians, she she went, Sarge, straight away, I'm sort of like, why should you call me Sarge? So there's something coming. Yeah. A bit, bit more than I really want to know. Yeah. She went, oh, this is really sad. I said, well, they're all sad. She went, oh, his dad's coming with you. And I'm thinking, how did she know this? Because they had nothing to do with the flows. These were the ladies that made up the, the deceased to try and yes. make them look presentable. Yes, um, yes. And then she said... And uh, what a great job they oh, do as well. The, going off them little grainy photos again, that's all they had to work yeah. on to make these people what they might have or what they were before that incident. Um and then she said to me, he lost his wife two weeks ago oh. and that was his only child. And oh. I was just like, you know, the the impact of that because I'd got my new baby yeah, was just like, and I actually stopped in my tracks when she said it. And I looked at her and I just raised me, me hands as if to say like, what are you telling me that for? Yeah. So I took this young fella through and he was in a bad way. And um, I spoke with the flow. Um, but 10 minutes later, the flow's come back around and he said, Gal, can you say thanks to the team and all that? You're not a problem. Um, he said, um, I'm from Dad, you know, thanks for looking after his son. All right. And I went into the room after they'd gone. And I, what I used to do was get the flowers and the cards and whatever and put them in a body bag, zip them up, take them back. Um, basically sort of put them back to rest until we could move them again. But on this occasion, I caught sight of what this gentleman had written on her bereavement card. Don't make me cry. No, because I am. <laughs> um, and that's haunted me. Yeah. No, I can see it as, mate. You've, you've, you've got me um, going now as well. And I've, I just can't control that emotion. Um, and I broke all the rules. <clears throat> Um, and left the body unattended. I went outside and I just broke my heart. 
Um, the feeling of guilt is something I've, but I you could never really feel guilty about, about me. But I, I was sort of, I think what it was, because I was going home to my new son and my other two babies, um, and this poor gentleman was going home to nothing. And it really, um, it done me. And I've, that was the start of my, my um, sort of downward spiral. You know, we, we carried on um, doing what we did. And when it come back to the repatriation, you know, I, I had to give back all of our people. And I'll say our people because that's what they were to us. Um, and plus the, what was left of the four bombers. And without stirring up any more hatred than there already is, I think, the feeling of animosity from their undertakers, the bombers, to us, it was, you could taste it. it oh, was really? A, it was horrible. And they were stood one side of the tent and I'm on the inside waiting to give them their deceased. And it was... Did they have family members come in as well? No. No. So everything... Well, they, I say no. From memory, I can't can't remember it um, because, to be quite fair, there wasn't a lot left of them. No, it was just a bit bit of bone and bit of wire, yeah, and whatever. Yeah. Um, and because another thing was that the process that we had to go through for the uh, identification, it took a lot longer than the twenty four hour period they have, where they like to turn things around and get people in the in the ground or sure. whatever. Um, so that was a really weird thing handing over the deceased, getting all the forms filled in and signed yeah. off and whatever. Um, and, you know, it was almost like these their undertakers were blaming us, you know, and it was just sort of, it was just a weird thing. Um, you know, we we got through that process um, and so we ended up breaking down the, the, the mortuary um, and then basically just went back to, Normal duties, and that is, that in itself is bizarre. Before we go into normal duties, and I've always wondered this: how on earth does a pathologist carry out a post mortem? Because they're they're legally duty bound to carry out a post mortem on what is presented to them. And if it's a bag of mush, dare I say? Well, they open the bag and go, yeah, yeah. It it was. Sort of that we would take clippings and samples. Uh, the pathologist would would come in. Uh, you, you go through all that scenes of crime stuff. You know the photographs yes. pre-opening the bags and da 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 da. Um, and yeah, it we found again without getting too graphic for for your listeners. There was often some of the bodies that we had would have parts of other people embedded in them yes, from, from blast. So again, that created its own set of unique challenges. Yeah. Um, because we'd have to then set up another DVI book, and you know, you can imagine the amount of body parts that were coming in as well. Um, and you know, we we both know from experience, you can't just go, "Well, that looks like that fits that bit." So no, it's not. <laughs> it's not a that, jigsaw no. puzzle you've just no. bought from Harrods. Um, so, and hence that's why it, it took so long to to identify all the victims. And you know, I'll tip my hat to everyone that works at that mortuary. Mm. The search teams that were down at the sites, um, retrieving the deceased um, and doing some incredible work. 
Um, I was a search officer and there were times I would suggest when I preferred to have been out on a search down yeah, in the course. tunnels than doing what I was doing, and especially that day with that card. Um, but, you know, again, it's something I look back on and I suppose it was a unique time and I'm at, in my mind's eye, I'm pleased I was able to help that last part of the journey for Absolutely. the families and the deceased. Um, and, and get them repatriated back to their loved ones um, and and do what – I was part of a very special team, let's put it that way. Um, and I, after that, I went on to become a DVI myself. Um, but, yeah, it was that's – a, That's a hard, hard story to listen to as much as anything else. And I think what people don't understand – I know I had friends that – did this for the tsunami, for instance. I know friends that worked out in mm. on the tsunami, but the anti-mortem stuff where there's hairbrushes, there's toothbrushes, there's anything that can identify that piece of body part to that person. And this, given the, the cosmopolitan world that we live in, there would have been people all over the world, a request would have gone into, you know, Jamaica. Yep. Can we have hair samples or brushes, toothbrushes, can we have all of that so that we can make sure that the person that we believe that we've got is the is the right person? Yeah, I mean, when you think that some of the people could only be identified by dentistry. Oh, I know. You know, and They'd again... wasted with, on me, mate. Yeah, same as me. I've got a, a full set of railings in my, in my nuggings, but you sort of, again, because of the the level of professionalism, and again, this is lost, I think, to a point in the general public who don't, I haven't done what we've seen and been involved with. And I don't want to sort of sound elitist, but that was our job. Yeah. But for again, you know, when I dealt with that young kid who was stabbed, one stab wound dead. And then, you know, my feelings around knife crime went through the roof. Did that act of terrorism and what it did to those people who were just about you know, going about their daily business, going to work and doing whatever, not to come home. You know, it, again, it, it brought me up to another level of policing where my style, I would suggest, certainly after that point, become a lot less tolerant than I was perhaps prior yes. to that. Yes. And I'm not saying that in a bad way. I think that it was because you become more switched onto your surroundings and what you what you were doing. You're absolutely right. And my concern is that we are currently switching off to our surroundings. And if we had another one of these, the fingers will be pointed because we've switched off to those surroundings. Absolutely. You know, um, it took my job seven seven weeks post-closure of the HAC. They went, shit, we're not debriefed anyone. Really? Seriously. And um, we've just gone back to normal policing. Dealing with, we'd average two to three fatalities a week. Yeah. Um, so it's open again to that repeated trauma on top of the stuff that you're dealing with out in the streets. Yeah. You know, it's all cumulative, isn't it? Um, and I went, all oh, right, we better send you off for a debrief. So they sent us off to a, a hotel in the West End. So I had my team with us and we got in this hotel and I went, you're downstairs in one of the sort of boardrooms down there. Went, okay. <laughs> we went down there. And there was about 40 odd cops in this room about Martin. And this lady, bless her, I felt ever so sorry for her. She sort of sat in the middle of us. She introduced herself. And I sort of said, uh, excuse me, I said, uh, are we doing this 
as a, an individual thing or is this like a collaborative thing? She went, oh, no, we're all going to sit and talk. I said, no, we're not. And Marlott looked at me. I went, right, pub. And we went down to the pub and debriefed ourselves. Mm. And that's how it was from that point in. Um, I was unknowingly at that point starting that decline with my mental health and I was self-medicating with, with booze. And bearing in mind I had good training from a, a young soldier's point of view, being out in Germany where I learned to drink, you know, you, you go out on a lash and you think nothing of doing a dozen pints, go to bed for two hours, get up and do a five-mile run and then carry on with your day. You could do it. But that's where I was going again. We've had a five-mile run. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I was using the drink to stop these intrusive thoughts I was starting to get, flashbacks and my nightmares. Um, my relationship indoors with a wife and especially my two eldest lads, they were only babies, uh, eight and six at the time, I suppose, something like that. I was always angry badger. Less tolerant. Oh, goodness made it. Those boys, bless them, they couldn't move without me shouting and screaming at them. Um, mm. And it was, I look back on it now and I'm, I'm absolutely mortified that I behaved in that way, but I had no idea I was, you know. Why would you? When I look at it now and we use part of that scenario in the presentations we give around awareness to PTS, PTSD, to the forces up and down the country, um, we use parts of my wife. My wife did a statement and my oldest lad did a statement and we use extracts from that as part of the case study um, that we present at the end. And I've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times, a bit like that uh, bereavement note on that card. It breaks me. Gets you every time. Every time. Yeah. Because I didn't realise that I was behaving in that manner. Um, you know, the wife sort of says at one part, you know, when she met me in the green jackets, I was a lovely bloke to be around, always a laugh, always helping people, blah, blah, blah. And then post-2005, it was proper Mr. Jacqueline Hyde. Um, you know, and I had loads of griefy jobs around sort of fatalities and young, and I mean little ones to, to elderly people. Everyone's different, you know, stabbings and Christ knows what else, but... The mortuary in that card is, is sat heavily with me and it will do uh, for the rest of my life. And um, I, I didn't realise I was struggling. Um, and I used to, uh, I'd come home from work and uh, I'd want to tell her something about my day. But I couldn't because it was too horrible. But she was heavily involved in child protection yeah. in her job. So she knew what it was all about. Um, but we just used to lock horns and shouting and screaming and doing it in front of the boys. And it was just a, a dreadful time. You know, we'd try and go out for a day. And where I was so hypervigilant, I'd end up locking someone up or having a fight. And it, in my mindset, I couldn't see why I was doing it. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't until I got involved in something off duty. And I had one of my kids with me. That was the, the trigger for the PTSD that I didn't know that So what was that? So I was part of a special search team during the Olympics. 
and uh, we was based over the Olympics uh, doing all these sort of, dare I say, specialist search uh, bits and bobs. And I came home, we'd done like, it's 12 hour days, 12 hour nights. And this is at Stratford? This is at Stratford, the in the Olympic Park, Park itself. Um, and we had some good finds. Um, not that the public needs to know about that, but it was yeah. interesting again. Um, particularly long day, come home. My middle lad wanted to go down the shops, at the top of our roads, pray the shops. So I walked down there with him, flip-flop shorts, T-shirt. Not a good look at the best of times, but I was a little bit lighter than I am now then. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this thing just happened in front of me with two two fellas clearly under the influence of both drink and drugs. And it's like any off-duty thing, and it? You just put your blinkers on, and if unless someone's getting stabbed or murdered in front of you, you just sort of mosey into the crowd and disappear because it's going to get griefy. Well, this thing just developed and then accelerated before I knew it. And I ended up calling the job in um, and gave a running commentary on these two lads, what they were doing, what they were saying, uh, to the Met Call Centre. And I was requesting some backup because I had my, my middle boy with me. He was about 10. Um, and it just escalated it went into our local station at elm park and these two guys obviously run aware that i was job they'd gone down into the station um and there was police cars whizzing about everywhere which had sent these two guys to sort of make off from police basically so these two young met cops turned up never forget it. they thought they were like starsky and hutch mm-hmm. it was only young fellas and there i'm flip-flop shorts and I got my one card out, briefed them. And I said, look, I've called a job and I'm still on to CAD. Um, fellas, the two guys are down there. Identified them both. Very descriptive. I said, whatever you do, do not run down that ramp onto that station platform because they will run off and we're going to have a death in custody or in police contact. For one yeah, yeah, word. yeah. I'll never forget this young met cop. He just said to me, who the fuck do you think you're talking to? And I sort of looked at him, <laughs> looked at me little fella, and he sort of looked at me, and I went, you can call me sergeant if you want. You're in my jurisdiction, and this is what's going to happen. And with that, I just both bolted down the platform. Next thing, one of them has jumped in front of an incoming train, this great big oh, beast, no. who later transpires it, it takes at least two carriers when they go and knock on his door to oh. subdue him. So my son is now screaming his head off thinking he's just seen someone get by a train. The train's done an emergency stop. It's got loads of people on it. The other lad has now gone through the trespass part of the platform. I'm on the phone. I'm there running as best I can down the platform in my flip-flops. Left me boy with the station manager. Oh, my life. Who knew me. But my boy had line of sight. Yeah. Next thing, he sees his dad go through the trespass gate. He's now fighting with this bloke because this bloke has tried to push these two young cops onto the live track. And I managed to punch him a couple of times. And I'm saying to these two cops, get some cuffs on him. Let's just, you know, get him on the ground and cuff him. So I put a leg strike in, a couple more punches, and got him down, ended up cuffing him. Took five uniform officers to get this individual at the station. Everything calmed down. He's in the back of a vehicle. I'm quickly now in a station office. My little lad's crying his eyes out. He thought Dad was going to end up on the tracks. Yeah. But in my head, I went back to the mortuary. That was the only thing I could see was 
that dead kid on that gurney and his dad. But I was looking at it from my son's point of view. Yep. And it just completely flipped me. Um, and all of a sudden things started to sink in about how I've been and whatever. I've done my notes. I'll never forget. I'll come out of the supervisor's office and this bloke who got cuffed up was in the back of the vehicle. The other white bloke had disappeared. We had India 99 out looking for him and whatever. A helicopter. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. That's and right. um, I could see the back of this, well, the van was just rocking from side to side. And I could hear this banging and banging and banging. And I could hear this like, cop at the back of the van, Cad, uh, can you show DP, smashing his head violently in the back of the vehicle, causing it to, to sort of move. What do you mean move? Well, from left to right in a swinging motion. All right, okay. And that was all logged. And I said to the cop, open the door, mate. So he opened the door and I opened the cage and the geezer looked at me and he sat down. And I said, what are you doing? He'd already had this great big lump over his eye, which had caused concerns right at the start of this, dare I say, intervention that was going to cost me my job. And he's like, Ed was covered in lumps and bumps. Now I knew for a fact I hadn't done that. I punched him in the face, yeah, but not on his forehead. And what he'd been doing, and I didn't know at the time, he was a prolific self-harmer. Hmm. So I'd been smashing his head in the rear of the cage. Um, and he sort of sat down. I said, mate, you're not helping yourself. And he goes, just stop hurting yourself. We know, close the door. And he sort of stopped. But I'm, as I walked away with the lad, with my middle son, all of a sudden it all kicked off again. Anyway, I went back to Stratford in the morning. Oh, girl. Uh, Duty Governor wants to speak about last night. So I've done all my notes and whatever. Then I heard nothing more. Um, I popped back into my old Nick because by that time I was part of our London North area, which was the big chuff chuffs um, as opposed to the underground. I went to see the custody skipper, um, who I knew. I said, oh, what happened last night? He said, oh, when he came in, he was so much under the influence of uh, drugs and drink that we couldn't read him his rights, as per pace would suggest. Um, and he played the game and elected that he needed to go to hospital, suffering with headaches. Anyway, he absconded from hospital, didn't turn up for his bowel, blah, blah. And then my lot started chasing him. But this was all going on. I, I was unaware of it. And then I got noticed that professional standards wanted to talk to me. Um, at this point, I hadn't been nicked or anything. Um, how, far, how far in time are we talking about four months after the event at that stage. And you had no idea? No we... idea at all. As far as I was concerned, I'd done my statement. My pocketbook was well up to speed, um, no dramas. And no one had actually spoken to me. So, you know, it was just another job. Um, and then all of a sudden it had sort of escalated a little bit where I was going to be interviewed under caution. I was like, where's this come from? You know, well, I just want to speak to you about it. And this was nearly seven months after the event. Um, it then transcribed from conversations I had with professional standards that they were looking at a minimal ABH offence. Again, beyond me, oh, they showed me some photographs. You inflicted these injuries. I said, well, hold on a minute. I said, who took those photographs? Oh, his girlfriend did on her mobile phone. All right. So from an ev- evidential <coughs> point of view, um, when were these taken? Oh, about three or four days after the event. Like, why haven't seen the crime been round? Why haven't I been nicked or yeah. 
And they're looking at me. It's like, well, why are you telling us our job? And that's how the whole thing sort of progressed. And then I was interviewed under caution, um, carried or allowed to carry on frontline policing. Um, so you weren't restricted in no, any way? I was allowed to crack on because I was still putting bodies in the cells and, and doing the various jobs that I was doing up and down the country. Um, and fair play to my governor at the time. He said, Gal, he said, I want to bring you in, put you in CID, just take you away from the public face inside of it. I was like, no. Nah. I said, what for? I've not been nicked, so I'm going to carry on. And hindsight would have suggested that perhaps it might have helped me a little bit if I'd gone an attachment to CID or whatever. Um, carried on, dealing with hooligans. Dare I say, getting involved in lots of punch-ups. Um, again, the PTSD was really churning up. Um, got to a point when I saw me, me doctor and he just went, you're ex-military, you'll suffer with that, off you go. All right. Just totally discounted it. Yep, because you're ex-military. And it was sort of like, well, okay. Um, went back to work, said, look, the doctor said this. You know, just, just get back out and carry on doing what you're doing. So we carried on that. You know, Saturdays and midweek games during the football season was always a bit of an earner, um, irrespective of which part of the country we was in. Um, but for me, it was a release because I'd have a punch-up um, because my tolerance had gone. Um, and I remember getting involved in a job over at Euston. And by the time I got this fellow, he was a big, big man in the back of the vehicle. My partner turned around and he went, you need to calm down. I was like, right, you can wind your neck in. Let's just get him around the road in the custody. And as I'm walking around the van, I sort of open the back and I'm just thinking, Jesus Christ. This this geezer on a normal day would have eaten me alive. He was a huge man. But I'd sort of... Squared him up. Just a bit. Then I looked at myself in the mirror and I had a bit of a baggy lip going on, a baggy eye. And got him into custody, went through the process, got the CCTV and... You know, you can always guarantee that if you're relying on CCTV for a job, it would fail you miserably. Yeah. But thankfully, on this day, all you saw coming out of the crowd of people kicking off was this great big hand fist clonking me in the boat. And then, yeah, so I'd reacted in a positive way. But <laughs> um, you can justify the, you, It was justifiable use of force. Yeah. Um, but I must admit, it was really then that I was just like, Christ. Everything is just spiraling out of control now, and I don't know what to do. Uh, being a bloke, I wouldn't speak to anyone because I was at go-to where I was a PC or an acting skipper, doing public order stuff or whatever. Everyone would always come and speak to Gaz because Gaz would sort it out and Gary would do this and Gary would do that, which is just my nature. Going back to what we said right at the beginning, like with my mum looking after all the kids around yeah. that way. Being in the military, I found myself in an NCO's card a very – early in my career, um, which was unheard of. Um, and it's sort of, you know, football, always captain of the team, which I think I look back on that now as perhaps because when I got assaulted as a kid by those two people, I become very protective of those close to me and around yeah. me. So I've always looked out for everyone, but not myself. And it was getting to that point where, you know, I was such a, a proud, arrogant individual I suppose like most blokes are and I didn't want to show me emotions 
like I just did a minute ago with that card I can now because it don't, I'll, I'll cry at the opening of a packet of crisps. Yeah, me too. Mate. Especially if it's like, you know, there's none in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it just was like, wow. Then all of a sudden, um, I, I have to go and see our professional standards and they serve a summons on me, which was really funny in the respect that the, the young DS who served the summons on me was one of my probationary cops. And I sort of looked at him and he was like really, he was upset. He didn't know what to do, how to approach it. I said to him, here we go, Matt. I said, uh, you shoved up your ass, mate. I'm not accepting that. He went, yeah, but I've served it on you. I said, no, you ain't. I haven't touched it. I said, do what you want with it, mate. Stick it in the post. The only reason I behaved like that was because things were getting filtered back to me about the investigation and they'd even got my bloody name and address wrong on the summons. So that's why I was like, yeah, put it in the post. I'm not going to receive it. What are you going to do? You know. Um, and then before I knew it, I was taken off the streets and bearing in mind that my PTSD was around all the trauma that I dealt with in the job and especially going back to the bombings as a duty care that, you know, clearly my job had towards me. Yeah. What did they do? They stuck me in uh, the coroner's office. So I was dealing no with way. death and destruction. That's looking, terrible. <laughs> looking at videos and photographs, you know, of those sort of jobs. Um, went to court. Um, unfortunately, was found guilty of defence. By jury. By jury. You know, the judge, bless him, he, he guided the jury twice for not guilty verdict. Knew that I was struggling. Um, rather than sentence me on that day, he sent this, it was like a week before Christmas. He sent us uh, away for pre-sentencing reports. Um, and I had to go and see a top forensic uh, shrink at the time. And that's how much the judge was on my side. And I went and see this guy um, over in West London somewhere. Um, and he did a, a nine-page report on me. And he just, the bottom line was, that there's part of it I remember almost verbatim. Um, you know, went through the normal upbringing other than sort of like the sexual assaults as a kid. You know, Gary's a very normal individual um, and he acted out of character on this day because of the PTSD that he's had as a result of the trauma he's dealt with, the bombings and trauma thereafter. And that really saved me from going to prison. Mm. And I ended up getting six months suspended for a year. I had to pay costs to the individual that I punched with 1500 quid and if I didn't pay that there and then I was going away for a very indefinite period of time and I've got a, a bizarre 103 hours community service um, and my world just fell apart oh, at I that can point. only imagine mate um, so much so that I went to take my own life um, I just felt completely useless worthless um Anything that you can associate with that process, or that was me feeling of failure. But yeah, absolutely. Failed, mate. I know. Again, still bits of me that say that I did, um, but at that moment, um, I'd let everyone down, um, especially like my wife and kids. And I just thought, you know, they'd be better off without me. Um, and I never planned it. Um, bearing in mind, I dealt with hundreds of suicides across the network and everyone who said turn up to my trainer thought like yourself and every other colleague that's dealt with that is what a selfish act yeah driver couldn't stop driver's got to live with that passengers on the train disrupted you and i turning up to deal with the aftermath of that yeah. and often 
and as it was for me, I find myself not having only picked up what was left of a deceased person and identify them often delivering a death message by myself. Yeah. So you're doing the full package. Yeah, because invariably they would be local to that. Yeah, to that to station, that area. to yeah. that area. Um, and yeah, again, could talk for hours about stories like that. But this one morning, I just got up, got in my car, never said anything to the wife, uh, and I went to a place where I picked up loads of people that took their own lives, and that was me. And I'll never forget it. The train, I could see it in the distance, and it was it was coming towards me at speed. And all that emotion that I'd had um, after being found guilty, just for a, that period of time, just vanished. I, I felt um, really relaxed, at ease with everything, really happy. And I stood up because the train was coming. It was a fast one down the south end, and I just knew all I'd do was literally half a pace forward, and that would have been, been me. And I just felt so contented. It's just, it's the weirdest thing. Mm. And then as that train was almost upon me, I don't know why, I just fell back on my ass. Um, I had a, a real good cry. Um, got in my car, went home, told the wife, another big cry. And then uh, tried to sort myself out. Um, but you did sort yourself out, and yeah. and, and it's clear yeah. that you know your family have rallied around you. You've got the support there that you you need. Been amazing, absolutely amazing. And you know we can't do half the things that we do without that added value. No, and, and that was then the sort of process of setting up PTSD nine nine nine. When I look back at that whole package, I only did eleven years in the job. You know, I, I wanted to see my working career. I loved being in the job. I wasn't job pissed, but I just. I love the work I was yeah. doing. And, and when you say that no one day is the same, well, that was, again, that was one of the nice little secrets of the BTP. Yeah. With so many diverse sort of avenues of work and challenges, it was great. And um, I look back and just realised that there was no support. There hadn't been any support. And more importantly, as a bloke, I simply hadn't reached out to anyone through fear of, you know, the knockbacks I might get, the piss taking. Whatever, whatever you want to add to mental health, I, I put those barriers up. And um, I started having some treatment, some EMDR, which was a bit weird. What's EMDR? So it's, it's eye movement desensitization, um, and it's a really weird process. Okay. It's, it's quite a, um, a regressive thing where you go back to the trauma or the perceived trauma, and the the shrink who's treating you, basically what they do, they'll have a pencil or something or the fingers, as it was in this case, and they'll be talking to you about the trauma. So for me, it was like seeing this young fella on the gurney. Yeah. And whenever I was struggling, that was one of the main things that used to come back and sort of hit me. Um, and they'd be talking to you, but you'd have to follow his finger left to right. And what it does, it's teaching the brain to sort everything out. So the, the focus that you have on that perceived trauma, and let's be realistic, we have so many traumas. If I just quote a figure at you, before me and you join the job, we would probably have in our lifetime four to six traumatic events, right. possibly 
four to six, six to eight. Yep. You join the job or part of the emergency services, you will have between 600 to 800 traumas in your working career. Wow. Plus the four or six or six or eight to go on top. So we see a lot of trauma. Yes. Given the nature of what we do. Yes. But all this EMDR does, it doesn't work for everyone. It sort of realigns various parts of your brain into not thinking about the trauma and the disruptive nature of that. It's, it's very clever. Um, my job only let me have six sessions, something like that. No, I needed 30 plus apparently. So I was in such a bad way. Um, but I learned to start managing my triggers and whatever. Um, and as I say, we set up PTSD 999 um, as a little non-for-profit social enterprise yeah. organisation, uh, which we still are at this time. And we're working towards resubmitting our char charitable application. But we've delivered presentations up and down the country to all different forces, security services. Um, and I sort of believe now what we have is quite unique because we don't stand up there and use big sort of medical terms and whatever. We tell people where it is um, through lived experience. And it doesn't always sit well with some people, especially senior management, because we don't go out of our way to dig the senior management out, but it's sort of like you guys and girls in a position where you can make changes and help. And we just need to encourage forces, police, fire, ambulance, whoever it might be, RNLI, search and rescue, to look at what their men and women face on a daily basis. We all know times are hard and budgets and da-da. Let's cut the crap out. Let's get that sort of momentum of training or awareness in. As we do each year with officer safety training, first aid bloody courses, whatever, make that part of the curriculum. Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right because there is such a big push around other areas, like diversity training. Mm. We, we, we should be now at a point where people understand inclusion, where we shouldn't be having to train people around yeah. inclusion because actually when we were kids, let's get that, when we were kids, we had Grange Hill. We had the things that we had <laughs> Love Thy Neighbour and all that. Yeah. The, the world has changed in entertainment, in whole world values. It's changed, and therefore that's one part that shouldn't be as um, focused as the – because PTSD is a genuine concern. Diversity is a genuine concern, but the education around diversity is there. The education around PTSD is not there. Absolutely. Um, when we break down PTS or PTSD – it's a brain injury. It's as simple as it's that. A scar on your brain. Of course it is. Yeah. And and the title's in it. Well, the answer's in the title. P, post, you turn up something that's happened. The trauma is getting there and looking at the scene. Yeah. The stress is almost like falling over and cutting your knee, grazing your elbow. Yeah. That's the injury to the brain. Yeah, absolutely. You know, people don't don't like using the word disorder now because, again, it in the, the woke world that we live in, it conjures up all manner of things. You've got a disorder. Well, you know, that's down to the individual. Um, but, yeah, especially from a policing perspective, um, you know, I'll, I've been asked to give our presentation at the College of Policing to these fast-track recruits in the CID and stuff like yeah. that. And we did this just pre-COVID and was given a, a presentation to about 140 officers that were going into various forces up and down the country. And there was a young DS 
sat at the back of the room, um, just shaking his head, his head in his hands with my presentation. And so everyone is sitting there intently listening to the presentation. Um, and it's DS, and I'm just getting a little bit wound up by it. <laughs> and I wasn't being overly, you know, throwing in too many swear words or whatever, or being a little bit nasty. It was just, it is what it is. It's a lived experience. And I had a moment, that, that thing with a bereavement card always gets me. And I stood in front of these people, and for a minute or so, I had to catch my breath up. Tears, snot bubbles, and I just lost it because it, it brings back yeah. a lot of emotion. And he's sort of like looking at me, and then I come to the conclusion of the presentation, and it wasn't the first time it happened, and I hate being at the, the receiving end of it. The whole class, these 140-odd cops, stood up and clapped, and there was a little bit of whooping going on. I, I really struggle with it. I've never been able to deal with like pats on the back. And I'll get, oh, God, this is cringy. Just, everyone just sort of sit down. And they carried it on. And this DS come up and in the end he had to get on the stage and tell everyone to sit down. There was a, another hour or so of the program left. And he whispered to me, he said, Why don't you have to fucking talk to him like that? And that was his words to me. And I'm like, Well done. So he berated the, the co op for their behaviour, very unprofessional. And then he said, Right, we've lost time. He said, uh, everyone outside and find out your postings for Monday. Now all these guys and girls were going to their respective CID units. So I just sort of said to him, is this the state of policing there where all these men and women in this room are going to go to their posts on Monday in their nice Gucci suits and silly leather shoes, you know, handbags and whatever, and sit down and think they're going to be drinking Dijalin tea and the finest brew? What are you doing to these people? He went, well, that's how it is. He said, no, no, no. So let's get a grip on reality. Let's look at what they're going to be dealing with on Monday morning. Child murders, sexual assaults, rape, yep. burglary, all manner of other crime. And you're deflecting <coughs> that away from the way you've taught these people. Shame on you. And as I went outside, all the officers were just lined up to shake me by the end. They weren't even bothered about their postings for Monday. And that's always sat quite heavily with me because you think, I'm giving them that lived experience. And... You know, my stories are nothing in comparison to other people's. You know, that's just what happened to me. You've got stories, I'm sure, that, you know, they're saying about Johnny Two shedding someone. No, no, no. We've all got our stories. But to be in a situation where I was shown a fatality on the railway during my training, and that was a a 1970s grainy black and white video of kids playing football near a railway line. Yeah. Ball goes over the fence, trains yeah. come in, look at the kids, look at the football. Train goes past, football's on the 440 between the tracks with a training shoe. End of film. No blood, snot, guts, anything. No aftermath. Don't go near the railway. Yeah, My, my first fatality on the railway, my God, I wish it had been like that. It couldn't have been any further from that. I know. You know, and it's we need to be looking at reality and going back to what we were discussing earlier on. The police need to have the confidence of the law and the, the law should be supporting our officers on the ground. Absolutely. It's as simple as that. And we wouldn't be halfway to where we are now in trouble. You know, what happened to Crusader Dick? Don't want to get too political. Outrageous. Danny Cotton, former chief of the fire service. She's now a patron of ours. And it's unforgivable. But these people have got lived experiences. 
um, you know, with Danny, we, we gave a presentation to her just after Grenfell. And she openly stood in front of a, a team of her senior managers and said, you know, I'm really struggling with mental health. That's why I've invited Gary along to give the presentation. I want to encourage you guys and girls to stand up and say, boss, I'm struggling. Because if I'm struggling, you've got to be struggling. How do you feel dealing with, with the police now? Bear in mind that uh, you did get convicted of assault. Yeah. How do you feel dealing with them now? It's, you know, I wish I was still in the job. Um, but the other part of me says, given the way that policing's gone generically now, I probably wouldn't last it another three or four years in the job. Got you. Um, I miss it. It's, it's always hard talking to officers. Um, when we give our presentation, because as you're going through the various sort of scenarios, you're watching these men and women, hard men and women, sitting there, ticking off in their own head, their own little list of, that's me, I've done that, yeah, I'm doing that, bloody hell, that's Fred down the road, and that's, and it's difficult. And I, I'll get a bit wrapped up in it because I know that I can't save everyone and I can't help everyone, but my sole reason for setting up PTSD 999 was to try and achieve that with me and the other co-founder who was nothing to do with emergency service. He was, uh, Simon was a, a paratrooper um, and his sort of struggles come from the Balkans conflicts. So a lot of these guys, he was an officer, left the military and ended up in emergency services. So they're bringing that baggage with them yeah. to get a, a whole new set of baggage. Yeah. Um, I feel desperately sorry for anyone that I speak to now in the job or the fire service, or the ambulance service, or, or whatever body of the emergency services, because there is very little attention paid to mental health. People go through a process of ticking the boxes. You know, there's um, something called trim now they're using. Yep. Oh, that's a whole argument in itself, from my humble opinion. You know, not that of PTSD. Not but it's online, ticking but that, it's tick, ticking the corporate responsibility box. Absolutely. It just shows that they're doing something. And Trim, um, you know, is designed. I've met a fellow who invented it, um, Professor Neil Greenberg, I think his name was, ex-naval officer. Um, and when he sort of devised the process of Trim, I guess from a military point of view, naval point of view, he was just assessing the levels of anxiety, alert, whatever, on these two ships. One was at Battle Ready, one was Pina Coladas and volleyball for 48 hours. Yeah. And he just measured the levels of stress. But when it got interpreted into the Blue Light family, well, the bottom line is that someone goes to a traumatic incident and if they are struggling, they might put their hands up or someone might say, I think they need to be spoken to by a trim officer who's had half a day, a day's input on how to fill in a form. They're not medically trained. They're one of your colleagues. So we're developing these things around trust straight away. We all know what it's like in a job. You fart down one end of the corridor. By the time it's got down to the other end, there's been a major disaster. Yeah. That's how things get exaggerated. Yeah, absolutely. We know that. Um, and so a lot of people won't step up and go, I'm struggling. But when they do get trimmed, it's like, right, and I know this for a fact, it's sort of like when you get home this evening, don't have a drink. Don't sit up and watch whatever it was on the news. Don't do this, don't do that, and try not to think about it. Well, clearly you're going to do all of the above. And then you're supposed to be trimmed again 28, 30 days later. 
to see how you're getting on from that in initial trauma. Yeah. Well, how many more traumas have you been to within that period of time? Mm. So, yeah, from my humble opinion, and I'll keep using that word, it's it's cost lives, and people are still dying. People are still taking their lives. In the last four months, I know of seven individuals that have taken their own lives from within the services. Um, one of them was a, a, a friend of ours, used to do a lot of fundraising, ex-prison officer, ex-squaddy. Did exactly what I did, but he carried it through. Got up on the morning, having been out with some close friends of ours the night before, and hung himself, you know. Um, and we've got a mutual friend in him and served with him. Um, and we can't stop it, you know. I think the Met Police have lost four out of that seven. Wow. You know, it's and that's just in the police. And I remember a, 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 a friend of mine took his own life and the impact that has on everybody around them because actually whilst we are very gregarious in our outlook, we're actually good at listening as well. Yeah. And, and what we do really, really well at the time of crisis after the event, we all band together and when somebody dies within your team or what have you, everyone is there together. But the fact is they're there together beforehand. You just want people to have the courage to come and sit down with you Absolutely. and say, you know, Paul, I've really got it bad at the moment. I need help. Because people will help. Even now, even now I've retired. I've been retired six years. If someone knocks on my door now, I would help them to the nth degree because I know what they're going through. Absolutely. And that and that's the big thing with us, you know. Pre-COVID, we were able to get people trauma-focused assessments and then whatever treatment was needed thereafter. Bearing in mind that we don't get any funding from anywhere, it's, you know, from good people donating or doing crazy fundraisers or whatever. Um, when you look at, excuse me, an assessment back then was, I don't know, somewhere in the region of £200 and treatment. It was about 130, 150 pound ago. You know, we've got a firefighter in one of the county forces who, up until mid COVID, has had 30 odd sessions. Bloody hell. And, you know, I'm not a mathematician, but you throw a couple of zeros on the end of that. Yeah. And it adds up. And so when we give our presentations, if there are any senior management team in there, we don't dig them out, but we're just sort of saying, you know, you can make changes. And often those people will come to us afterwards, you know, Q&A at the end of the presentation is always a bit of a, a tumbleweed moment because no one is going to present themselves. However, they'll come and have a, a chat with you if we're having a brew afterwards and express that they're, they're struggling. And that, that always happens. Um, and I've had it from some very senior people within the Met, Met Police. What can I do to change things? And I sort of look at them like, you are a commander or above that pay grade and you're asking me. But I'll tell you why, because a lot of them have never experienced what you've experienced mm. because it's okay and good for them that they've gone up the ladder and they've gone reasonably quickly mm. up the ladder, but a lot of them haven't had the experiences. Now, we mentioned someone, who, not, but I know that they have had those experiences they became a commander in the Metropolitan Police. They were the lead DVI for the tsunami. 
they know what you're talking about. Yeah. Now, their character is that they're the life and soul of the party, but deep yeah. inside, it's Pagliacci. Pagliacci was a, uh, was a clown. And on the outside, he was the funniest person around, but inside, he was broken. dying. He was yeah. broken. And I think that that is what is sometimes lost. People think that the, the, the clown is the happiest person in the world, and sometimes he's the saddest. And do you know that is so true? When I look back on conversations after being diagnosed, died with, say, my mum and dad, and obviously my wife knew the monster that I was at that time, but through no fault of my own. My mum and dad were like, but you're always laughing. You're always happy. Mm. You're always having little family get together around jaws or doing, yeah. But, you know, you look at, like you just said, that clown. I use Charlie Chaplin. The man yeah. was, was an amazing entertainer, but inside was broken. Yeah. You know, Robin Williams. Yeah. Wow. What what a genius. What a yeah. comedic genius. But dead on the inside. And that's, that's how I was. I can remember going to jobs and me and my partner, I'll be driving and, you know, I'll be saying to Mick, I'm not getting Dan and retrieving any more bits of people. No. I've had it. <laughs> and he'll be like, no, I'm doing the log. And I'm like, no, mate, I'm, it's my turn. I'm doing, and we'll be having like a punch up as I'm driving on the blues, trying to get updates. And we get to the job. I'll go to the back of the car, get the dead bag. Mick would get the log. And that's how we worked. Yeah. Um, you know, and it just, that's how it was, you know. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. PTSD 999, how do we get hold of you? Who, who do I need to direct this to? So anyone within emergency services, serving or retired, you can have a look at our website, or if you were to email um, support at ptsd999.org.uk, that email will come to me invariably, and we can have that discussion via email, pass you on a contact number. Um, unfortunately, at the moment, we're not in a situation where pre-COVID we were able to get people assessed and treated. So we're doing something that I'm not happy with and we're having to signpost. I'm hoping that once our application gets accepted um, and we can get some strong funding, we can build the clinical team back up again because, you know, those men and women that we had are burnt out. Yeah. I would suggest 95% of the clinicians that we had, and they were all trauma-focused therapists, are just overwhelmed with current client and sort of post-COVID client that they can't take on anymore. So it's really difficult now. So um, I'm happy to talk to anyone, um, you know, and we will share some similar experiences. And often, I've, as I've found, it's all that that person might need at the end of the phone. And it's not, that's the end of the conversation. If you want to phone me up, have a chat, then just, you know, ring, ring me number. And, it, and it's there. So have a look at our website. You know, um, we did a, a film that we spoke about yep. earlier on. We'll put, uh, we'll put links to all yep. of this on, on and, the, this And uh, hopefully, you know, people watching that short film with our president, Mr. Graham Cole, um, it highlights a lot of signs and symptoms that you might not recognise in yourself, but you right, might recognise in a family member yeah. or, or a former colleague or a colleague. And it's just giving you that platform to, to reach out. So, yeah, if you need to contact us, have a look at us via, via our social media, our websites, or our Brilliant. email addresses, and when we do our best. And as I say, we'll put all the links on. But one last question. Take yourself back to that 17-year-old joining the army. What would you do different? What, 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 what advice would you give yourself now at 17? Uh, wind your neck in. 
<laughs> I, I don't think you've got that button in your body. <laughs> no. <to be> fair. <laughs> um, do you know what? I don't think I would have changed anything in my life. It's been a journey, and we, you know, we all use that term now. Then it's been a journey, and there's been this. Um, irrespective of what happened to me as a kid, I think that sort of shaped me to be the person I am now. And I think you know to to do anything good, you have to endure a little bit of wrong. And again, you know, what's happened to me yeah, has happened. Can't change that. But there's people out there who have suffered a lot more than me. And I would just like to think that, you know, if they're reaching out to us, we can help them. I've had a great time. PTSD 999 is a huge challenge. Um, but I'm enjoying that. Um, and I really hope we can get where we need to be, get our charitable status. And I just, it would be great. You know, we, I know personally we've helped a lot of people and a lot of families, which yeah. is my intention. But I would like to be able to sit back one day just before I spin off and know that people have confidence in their own ability to be able to say, I'm struggling with my mental health. And that's through all the work that my little team, all volunteers, have worked so hard to, to get in place. That would be great. Brilliant, mate. And these podcasts give you the platform in order to get that out there. Um, I'm really grateful for your time. Yes, you have had me in tears, <laughs> and but I'm I'm really grateful and keep up the hard work, mate. Paul, thank you very much for getting us here today, mate. Oh, thank welcome. you so much. Thanks.